Our psalm of the day is Psalm 80. You guys did an awesome job on keeping up with the creed, with some of the words that's in there. That was impressive. Okay, Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your right hand be on the man of your right hand. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, that your let your face shine, that we may be saved. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. We're continuing on in our series, working through the prayers of the New Testament, particularly the prayers of the Apostle Paul, and considering from those prayers, what does spiritual maturity look like? What was Paul praying for? What kind of formation did he want to see take place in the life of the churches? And this week, we find ourselves at the end of 2 Corinthians. Last week, we considered the prayer that is inside the first chapter. And then here at the end of 2 Corinthians, there is a very short prayer that Paul mentions. And so please follow along in your Bible if you have that available. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7 through 10. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, 
that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, it is by your Spirit that we ask that you will speak to us this morning, that all that you have inspired you would now illumine, and that you would bring this short prayer by the Apostle Paul to life in our lives, that we be spiritually vitalized, that we follow after you and your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. In 2008, Melissa and I moved with our two boys to Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. One of the things that we immediately noticed was as we were entering into starting a new church, the most difficult thing about the area was not so much starting a new church as it was the housing market. We found it incredibly frustrating trying to find a suitable home for a suitable rent or a suitable mortgage. And so after some time of looking, we landed in a two-bedroom apartment that was less than 1,100 square feet. And so we put all of our worldly belongings in there with our children. The boys still have fond memories of it, and we still wonder how. They called their backyard the little uh, three-by-five porch that was on the uh, fourth floor of this building that we lived on. And the hunt continued for where will we live? Because we were somewhat nomads in a church plant, we needed a place that we could identify with, where we could welcome people in, that we could meet neighbors. And so we were trusting God through all of this time. But the hunt was so frustrating for housing that we started and stopped on several different occasions. It just seemed futile. I was in one of those depressed moments where I had stopped And Melissa came home one day. She had been driving around a neighborhood nearby, and she said, I want you to look at this house. It's on Ivy Street. I knew which house it actually was. I had seen it pop up on my little home finder, and I had simply passed over it because it just looked too bad. It just looked like a big pile of junk, and it just seemed like too much money for that big a pile of junk. So we contacted the realtor. We went to the pile of junk anyway. And it was a desperate pile of junk. There were three or four families currently inhabiting it. The house had been chopped up into many different zones and areas. There were bed bugs. Um, There was nasty paint. There was the most atrocious shag carpet you've ever seen or smelled. It was quite a sight. But Melissa and I started looking around and we said, you know, if you did this and you did that, this place could be really great. And so we purchased 808 Ivy Street in Arlington, Virginia, and it became home. It was a pile of junk, but it was our pile of junk. And so I remember still when my parents came to town to help us move, and they thought we had lost our minds. (laughs) You did what? And you want us to help you with this? And yes, uh, there were locks to remove. There was that shag carpet to pull back. Because what we noticed very quickly was underneath that shag carpet was the old hardwoods, and they were beautiful. And Melissa picked out the paint colors, and suddenly you could see the transformation taking place. There was a kitchen that had a bad 1960s redo, that wonderful decade that um, some of you endured. And, and that had to be removed. And, and then suddenly, on a very tight budget, the house began to be restored. The basement that was full of all kinds of nastiness 
without any serious renovation, with some area rugs, became a haven for the boys where they could take all the Thomas trains and Legos that they had and have all the fun that they wanted. That the house really became a home. That it was restored, it was renewed, it was revitalized in every way. It was some of the most exhausting but yet exhilarating six weeks of our lives as we worked on the renewal of that house. We were restoring something that had fallen into disrepair. And that can happen with a home. We've all seen that. Jacksonville bears the marks of it as many people renovate older homes. It gets neglected, it declines, and then it tanks. But this doesn't just happen with homes. When we're honest, it also happens with churches. And I'm not talking about church buildings. I'm talking about individuals, and I'm talking about communities that profess faith in Jesus, that we go neglected, we decline, and we fall into disrepair. This happens to all of us. We decline in our spiritual vitality, and we need God's work of restoration. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul prays for in chapter 13 at the end of this very difficult letter to the Corinthian congregation. You'll note in verse 9, your restoration is what we pray for. Now many people think, well, the best way to avoid this prayer is simply never to be in need of restoration, to always just hold firm and be strong. And it seems somewhat naive when we consider all the weaknesses that we carry that beset us, when we consider the complex cultural situation in which we live in, when we also consider just the raw demands of enduring the Christian life and all the things that happen to us, to think that we will never find ourselves in need of restoration, the renewing work of the gospel, that that will never need to be renewed after the moment of our conversion, seems a bit short-sighted. And Paul here is praying for the restoration of this Corinthian congregation. And the part for us of spiritual maturity that seems so important to absorb from this little prayer is that we never get beyond the need for that restoration. That spiritual maturity actually recognizes the need for it from season to season and time to time and from year to year. But why is that? In our brief moment together, as we prepare for the Lord's table, we'll consider four reasons from Corinth as to why we never get past the need for restoration. And we must do these quickly. First, we don't mature past self-examination. Look with me in verse 5 of chapter 13. At the end of his letter to the Corinthians, a gifted and talented congregation that was filled with many spiritual gifts, Paul says this, examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And friends, this was his admonition to them that they needed to do some self-reflection, that they needed an increased awareness of where they were in Christ You see, the grace of God does forgive our sins, and it breaks the power of sin's hold over our lives. But the thing that the grace of God does not do in this life, 
on this side of the resurrection is that it does not free us from the presence of sin. And as long as sin is abiding in us, we never mature past the need for self-examination. And friends, this is what is so critical to spiritual maturity, is that we never see ourselves having arrived in a place where we don't need to be reflective and humble and aware that maturity requires this self-awareness. And the great gift of the gospel is that we have the freedom to do the self-examination. Because our righteousness is not rooted in ourselves and our standing with God is not based in who, how we perform. But because our standing with God is rooted in Jesus and what he has done on our behalf, we can freely open up those dark corners of our lives and look into the issues that self-examination will raise. That is the great freedom and hope that we have. We can take a deep, hard look at ourselves because we have been forgiven by God. Now, the problem that we struggle with is that we often don't want to take that deep, hard look. Normally, we know what happens on the other side of that deep, hard look, and we don't want to engage it. During that renovation, I met with my contractor one day, and he walked me into one of the bathrooms, and he said, Chuck, I need your permission to open up the wall. And I said, well, why would you want to open the wall? He says, well, there's signs of decay and rot and mold. And so I asked him again, well, why would you want to open up the wall? <laughs> We're committed <laughs> over here. <laughs> Do we really need to open up the wall? <laughs> yes, we need to open up the wall. And I didn't want to because I knew what was there. I knew exactly what was behind that drywall. <laughs> it was apparent. The floor as you walked on it was, was rotting underneath your feet. It's clear what was going to happen, that we were then going to have to address whatever that was, and it scared me. And friends, this, there is a great momentum in our lives not to open up the wall. But the gospel frees you into this self-examination. It allows you to do it. It allows you to engage in that way. The grace of God frees you to do it. And friends, it's one of the reasons that we always need the restorative work of God's grace is to arrest that negative momentum in our life. Now, the second piece to this as to why we need the restoring work of God is that we tend to revert to our former habits, things that once plagued us. This is one of the things that's so remarkable about the book of Corinthians. There are two long letters devoted to this congregation that was so gifted and talented, planted by the apostle Paul, and yet they were also a great source of trouble and trial to him. And the Corinthians, we learn something from Paul at the end of this letter. If you follow with me in chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, listen to what Paul says. He says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may, not find, that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, God, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. 
Now, if you were with us roughly a year ago, we worked through the book of 1 Corinthians, where absolutely every one of these things that we just listed was addressed. That there were deep social divisions and divides in the Corinthian congregation because of their arrogance and superficiality. They were preferring some leaders over others, and they were exalting themselves among each other and judging one another. And so there were social divisions. And then there were also impurities that were taking place. There were sexual immorality rampant in the congregation that was accepted due to some faulty philosophical teachings, that they had somehow escaped the body, and that what they did in the body didn't matter. And Paul had to address that. And then some were participating in uh, sacrificial rites where there was idolatry involved. There was impurity of every kind. And Paul says here that he fears that they were reverting to these things. That they were going back. That despite his letter, and then that despite sending Titus, and also perhaps Apollos back to them to preach, that despite all of that effort and time and energy that had gone into cultivating this congregation, that they were reverting back to their former ways. And friends, when we consider the Corinthians, we can think about how retrograde they were. And it can give us some delight to look at them and think, wow, I wouldn't revert like that. But all of us have this great, enormous propensity to revert to our former ways. That yes, we may experience change and we may experience renewal, but then there can be this declension that takes place in our lives where we slide back. And because of that habit, that is why we need the restoring work of God's grace. We need that grace to confront us. We need that grace to critique us. And then we need that grace to change us on an ongoing basis again and again. That we not revert to the former things that once marked us. We need that as individuals. We need it as a community. This living dependence upon the grace of God. The third piece to this as to why we need the restoring grace of God is that we are prone to displace the gospel. One of the sharpest, most acute controversies that was taking place in Corinth at that time is found in 1 Corinthians 15. You may find it helpful to flip over there. But in verse 12, Paul asks this question. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And some of the Corinthians who had risen to leadership and positions of influence were saying that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Paul, just a few verses ahead of this in verse 3, has said that this doctrine, this understanding that Jesus as a physical body is up from the dead is the thing of chief importance. That there's nothing more central to the Christian faith. And some of you are saying that he didn't really do that. Perhaps they were saying it's a metaphor. Perhaps they were saying it's something that happens spiritually but not physically. Whatever they were saying, they were displacing the core of the gospel message. That in Jesus' death and in his resurrection, that the world had been reconciled to God and that God was now reconciling sinners to himself. And so Paul understood that they were displacing the gospel and they were then replacing it with something else. Because let's be honest, had it just become a non-spiritual place? No. I'm sure you could find some great teaching there. There was probably wonderful instruction about parenting 
and perhaps good classes on prayer techniques. Perhaps there was instruction about how to care for your neighbors in need. Maybe they did all those things really well. But Paul's critique is that they were doing all of that, and they were not doing it through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus. That the core central message of the gospel had been displaced. And friends, this is perhaps the most devastating thing that happens inside of the church. It's happened all the way back in Corinth, and it still continues to happen today where we busy ourselves with many spiritual things, sometimes good things, sometimes gross errors like we find here in Corinth. But we end up losing the thing of first importance, that the death and the resurrection of Jesus doesn't stay central in all that we're doing, in all that we're teaching, in all that we're saying, in all that we're striving to accomplish. Now, as a young Christian, I worked with college ministry, and I was... um, very much given to the, the mission of that, of that group and went on a conference uh, one weekend, which Melissa and I were both present, and it was a conference in which they were building up our skills of evangelism and discipleship. And this was the major emphasis of the ministry, that we be good evangelists and that we know how to effectively disciple people. These were really good things. They are things that every Christian Uh, would benefit reading about and benefit receiving some training in. But after the conference, I found myself in need of meeting with a spiritual mentor, and I was talking with a Presbyterian pastor. And I was explaining to him that I was feeling spiritually dead. And he said, well, what have you been doing? I said, well, you know, I went to this, this conference, and we focused on evangelism and how to do that better. And we focused on discipleship and how to do that better. And I think that my chief problem in my spiritual deadness is I'm really not good enough at doing those two things. And I need to become more effective. And if I was more effective, I would feel more alive. He was gracious but rough. And he said, Chuck, what I fear for you is that you've displaced the main things of the gospel. That you have some very important things, things that you value, things that God values, things that God even wants you to engage with. But they've taken up an importance to you. And in your life, where your relationship with God is rooted in those things, in how effectively you're evangelizing or how effectively you're discipling, And your relationship with God is not based on these things of first importance. The death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf that reconciles you with God. And he was right. And here I was, a minister of the gospel, displacing the gospel, not fully getting it, not comprehending it, not fully putting it into effect. And this is the great danger that the church always faces, is there are many good things competing for our attention. And we should engage many of those things, but they're always subsidiary to the thing of first importance. And then there are things that we're going to be confronted with, things that come in from the culture or from ourselves, whatever it is, things that attempt to displace the gospel by changing it. And friends, we hold fast to the gospel that's been revealed, that's been handed down to us in Scripture through the tradition of the church. The announcement that Jesus Christ is the one who reconciles all things to God as we place our faith in him. And so we don't displace the gospel, but because we know it is a tendency and we can do it so quickly. This is why we always need that restoring work of God. 
the work of his grace in our lives. And the final piece to this as to why we need this restoring grace is that we are prone to serve God with corrupted motives. One of the major things going on here in the book of 2 Corinthians involves Paul's reconciliation with the Corinthian congregation, trying to put this relationship right. And we learn in reading the letter, particularly in chapter 11, you'll find it in verses 7 through 11, that the Corinthians were upset with Paul for a very strange reason. They were upset with him because he had not accepted their financial generosity. Now, doesn't that sound strange? They were upset because he had turned away their gift to him. He had said, no, I do not want you to support me in the work of the ministry. Now, there was a reason for that. And Paul explains inside that chapter, in chapter 11, that he did accept the generosity and the contributions of other churches. But the Corinthians had a particular problem. In Greco-Roman society, there was this thing called patronage. And for philosophical clubs, which the Corinthians seemed to be influenced by, you would be patrons of a particular philosopher. And then it meant that that philosopher was then in debt to you. And he could somewhat become your chaplain. And so do you see why Paul refused to receive the support of the Corinthians? In all of their messed up vices and all of their fake virtues and every way, Paul was not going to be brought underneath their control. And so he continued to receive money from the outside as he ministered to them. He wasn't going to be their chaplain who was there just to baptize the faith as they wanted it to be. He was there to be their father who was handing them the faith, who was an apostle, who was teaching them about the grace of our Lord Jesus. And Paul, in the letter, while he says, I'm not going to receive support from you at this time, he also calls them to generosity. Perhaps remember the famous chapters, chapters 8 and 9, where Paul calls the Corinthians to generosity. But what he is saying is that you've been generous, but you've been doing so for the wrong motives and the wrong reasons. And so in chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so he uses the example of the humiliation of Jesus Christ where he identifies with us as men, as sharing in humanity. And that he goes to the cross and gives himself for us. In order that we can be reconciled with God, he uses this, this incarnation and death of Jesus as the example of the way that we're to be generous and charitable. And he's saying, what I want you to do is to take your gifts and not use it as patronage. But I want you to give to the church in Jerusalem that's suffering need. And so the Corinthians were wanting to be generous, but they were wanting to do so for the wrong reasons. And Paul calls them to the proper kind of generosity. A generosity rooted in the gospel, in the grace of God. A generosity that was self-denying. A generosity that put the the good of other people ahead of their own. That's the kind of generosity he wanted to see. And friends, inside the church, whether it relates to money or whether it relates to supposed virtue, that we can play this same game. We can appear pious, we can appear right, but underneath all of that, 
there's really rot. There's mold. There's something terribly wrong. And that can happen to us all far too easily. And this is why we are in need of that restoring work of God. That's why we never get beyond this prayer. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine. Never mature past that. Never think you're beyond it. It is the source of your vitality. It's your one hope as you endure through the Christian life. Because we are imperfect on this side of the resurrection. We tend to displace the gospel. We tend to revert to former sins. And we do have complex motivations. And we need the restoring grace of God to be continuing to sort out those things. And so let's ask him by his spirit to help us with it. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning the weaknesses that beset us and that we never go beyond the need for the restoring work of your grace. We thank you that you have loved us in Jesus Christ and you have canceled and nullified our sins. And that because of that, we can examine our hearts, we can be known by you, and we can do so without fear and shame. And so search us, O God. May we turn away from things that we've reverted to. May we turn away from displacing the gospel with other important things. And may we turn away from corrupted motives. We ask God that you would help us. Apart from grace and the work of your spirit and through the power of your word, we know that we can't sustain it. Renew us. We're grateful for this morning and the gift that we have of approaching you in prayer, bringing our common supplications, our desires, and our request. Hear us as we cast our burdens and anxieties upon you, our faithful God. So let's join our hearts together in silent prayer according to the following concerns.